All right, we're doing our study of Bible lists and a compilation of lists that Harold Wilmington put together and published in a, in a book. And I have taken some of those lists and then I have modified some of it, but I, most of it is just sort of an outline and then hopefully studying out some of the verses that are included in those Bible lists. And last time we met on, what is it, the third uh, we talked about numbers, because numbers are significant in the Bible. I'm not talking about the book of numbers, but the actual numeric figures that are mentioned in Scripture. And often those numbers are associated with um, some kind of meaning behind them as well. And we, as we see those, the first mention of numbers, for like an instance, we looked at one as a singularity. Two, the number of witness. Three, the number of uh, really... of of God and the divine unity. And we looked at that number. And we looked at number four last time, briefly at the end. And uh, that's the number of the earth, right? There are four directions on the compass. There are four, uh, uh, you know, four of the, the those directions. And then all the times the number four appears in scripture, where it, it uh, most often identifies with the earth itself four seasons and those things. Well, tonight we're going to start with the number five, and we're going to jump right into that because uh, there are numerous times where the number five is mentioned, and it's significant uh, in the various things as it unfolds. And before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we open up your word, and we've done so many, many times before, and yet, Lord, your word remains fresh and new and true. And Lord, I thank you for that. Your word endures beyond anything of creation. We thank you again for that, O Lord. And as we open up your word, may you open it to us in our hearts and our minds and our lives and may it have its effect. And God, that we would follow you and just be closer to you as the result of that. So again, we recognize this holy book and the God who wrote it. And we ask you to be lifted up here in Jesus' name. Amen. Bible lists. And as I said, the number five. And often it is associated number with the number of grace. Um, and, and it could be, there. I've seen other listings for that, but I'll show you what I mean by that. And this again, I'm getting this from Harold Wilmington's uh, list as he compiles it. And the first... Um, set of numbers and he has the five levitical offerings the five levitical offerings and there are uh you remember the burnt offering the peace offering you have the meal offering uh that i skipped the meal offering is the second one and then the peace offering and then sin offering and a trespass offering and those are in the first five chapters of leviticus and leviticus opens up right away with those um offerings that are mentioned and what is the significance of five in that we find in leviticus chapter one it says now the lord called to moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting saying speak to the children of israel and say to them when any one of you brings an offering to the lord you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock if this offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd let him offer a male without blemish He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. And I wanted to briefly just go down through each one of these offerings. 
which uh, entire chapter is devoted to. And then and when you get to the last one, there's actually uh, chapters 4, 5, oh, excuse me, 5, 6, and 7 on that one. But we're just going to look at a few verses. But we have here the, the burnt offering. And really this offering speaks of the highest aspect of the work of, of Christ He's seen in the offering itself, in him by himself, and uh, in that he offered himself entirely to God to do His will, including the will of going to the cross and dying. The offering, if you read that chapter, um, deals with you know it's the whole offering. The only thing that was not consumed by the fire was the skin of the animal, and it pictures for us a sweet savor. Uh, that is offered to the Lord in this. And it is uh, a picture of God's sacrifice he's done for us. Ephesians 5.2 says as much that he's our sweet-smelling sacrifice or savior, or savor. Excuse me. And it's seen here in the burnt offering as Christ who is bearing our sins and it's accomplished, he is accomplishing the will of God in that. And it's an interesting thing because it really speaks to um, God glorifying or being glorified in the sacrifice and the holiness associated with that sacrifice in that. And this theme is, is a prominent theme in the Gospel of John. It's also a prominent theme in Psalm 40. And you can note that if you want and look it up later in that. The second one is the meal offering. And the meal offering, chapter 2 of Leviticus, it says, When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord... His offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it, and put frankincense in it. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. And here you have uh, in the meal offering, it really pictures for us Christ, the sinless sacrifice, but he is the perfect sinless man. And you see the, the picture that is seen in that as, as that. He's also a spotless life. And there's no shedding of blood in this offering in that. Um, and it speaks really of the perfections of Christ in his very person in that he did not need blood shed for himself. But his life pictures for us that beautiful fragrance of life and also of death. Frankincense brings both. It is a, a sweet smell of life, but also used in association with death also. One of the gifts, by the way, that was given at the birth of Christ, right? frankincense and myrrh uh, and you had those sweet smelling spices that were offered Um, and it's again it speaks to the fragrance of his person and his life and that is seen in the meal offering the third one is the peace offering and again you have in Leviticus 3 when his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering If he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering 
an offering made by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. And then one more verse. And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And again, you have this sweet-smelling savor or aroma to the Lord produced out of the burning here, in this case, of the, this animal. And it's a food offering um, made by, uh, it's put on the altar as a food offering made by fire onto the Lord. And we know that from verse 11 further down. Um, and it's interesting because this was God's part, the inward parts, Right talks about the liver and the fat and the kidneys. And the best parts, reading further into the chapter, were actually a food offering that Aaron's sons could partake in. And particularly, it was the breast of the meat um, and also the right shoulder uh, of that, if I remember correct, looking down at that. And yeah, so it was offering for the priests. And so it's interesting because you see... Um, a picture here of this offering, the peace offering of a communion with God. And God wants our inward parts, right? He wants the very basis of who we are, but he also offers back something to us. And when man is at peace with God, he has a beautiful place of communion, fellowship, and feasting, really. And, and that is pictured here in the peace offering. Um, Luke's gospel is very much... A theme of the peace offering, and as well as Psalm 85, uh, if you want to look up a psalm that goes with that. And then you go to these other offerings, these two last ones, and you have the sin offering, and that's in Leviticus chapter 4. And it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. And you have here, this becomes a non-sweet smelling savor, but it's really a feature here of the offering of the whole bullock, and that was what was offered up in that And it was to be totally consumed and burned, but it was to be done outside the camp. And if you read of that chapter, uh, you'll find that that's where it was to be done. And it really pictures for us, and again, the blood and the fat were put on the altar of God, and the offering was for sin, and it pictures for us Christ who was made sin for us. Um, Someone put it this way, that it pictures for us the viewpoint from God's perspective of the cross. God's perspective of the cross was one that the son was forsaken. He was outside the camp. He was to be suffering the wrath of God, the very fire of God's judgment upon him for the sins of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5:21, it says it this way, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And that's what that bullock represented is something that was taking the place for our sin and paying the price for our sin. 
and that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if you want a, another parallel um, picture of that, it would be Mark's gospel. Mark pictures for us the sin offering of Christ, and from his perspective, the great servant who goes to, to save us from our sins. And Psalm 22 would be the psalm that matches that. Psalm 22. And then the last one of the five offerings is the trespass offering. And that's in Leviticus 5. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean livestock or the carcass of an unclean creeping thing, things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he's unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for the sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb, or a kid of the goat, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. Now, this is also an offering for sin, but it is a different perspective. If, if the sin offering of the fourth offering you know, that we just talked about was a perspective of God who was outside the camp and bore our sins the trespass offering is the one that we see from our perspective as it says here if a man sins if he sins if he touches an unclean thing if he and the reality is this that as we go through life we are going to do things and commit sin we will we we are justified and cleansed from sin you know as far as the penalty of sin but the very presence of sin still abides around us and in us. And if we feed that old nature, or we even inadvertently sin, we sin by omission sometimes, right? We don't do something. We sin by commission, that's when you do it. And then sometimes we have uh, sins of ignorance, right? And that, that all those sins are kind of covered in those opening verses that we read. Um, sometimes you take an oath and you say something good or something bad, you don't even realize that it could be sin right and he lays out or as as moses lays out this uh, sin offering as instructed from god uh, this trespass offering i should mention um, it's really the perspective of what we do when we see the cross the other one is god's perspective from the cross but this one is like i see what christ did for me and i realize that he wants me to walk holy and I can, if I sin, I need to go and to confess it before him. And that's that ever-present ministry of salvation that is part of, of the, the message of the cross, isn't it? Um, it's the cross restoring that part which was not entirely taken away yet. Sin will be eradicated in our lives in glory, but not before then. Um, 
and, and it reminds us of that. Matthew's gospel also presents that aspect of the offering of Christ and Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is the other one. Uh, and it just, again, shows us those things uh, about having, you know, someone. And by the way, 1 John 1.9 covers that, right? If we confess our sins, who are the we in that, in that verse? We. Who? Well, it's all of us, but who's the us specifically? Who's he writing to? Believers. Believers. My little children, he says earlier, right? So the we here are believers, it's a verse you can use for everybody, and that's true. Like, it is a great verse for evangelism in that way, but it's even more specific than that. It's the we. So if we confess our sins, we need to confess our sins. And the, really, responsibility of forgiveness and justice uh, for sin is on him. It says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's pictured in the trespass offering. And all that picture is grace, doesn't it? Grace. Someone else had to make it right. Or something else took our place. All to give us a relationship with the Lord and forgiveness of sin and a walk that is worthy to walk with him and commune with him, right? And to do that. That's grace. Uh, Another five. about uh, five Israelites to chase a (laughs) hundred? Leviticus 26.8. Five of you shall chase a hundred. I always wondered, why is that? You know, again, God is gracious. <laughs> he allowed the Israelites, who were even to this day, the Jewish nation is a tiny nation compared to its enemies. And yet, a very strong people because God is there, you know. And I would say, even in their unbelief, God is still faithful to them, isn't he, in that. Uh, Another five. Uh, go to the New Testament. Five virgins. Remember? Five wise and five foolish. And that parable of the five that were wise. Uh, and, and by the way, um, that parable in Matthew 25 deals with these two groupings of people. Two, in this case, pictured as the virgins who are awaiting the, the coming of their bridegroom. And you say, well, who's the bride and who's the bridegroom? In this case, uh, Matthew 25 is dealing with Israel. Uh, in the Old Testament also deals with the bride of the Lord and pictures Israel metaphorically as the bride. But you come to the New Testament, and it's even more specific than that. The, the church is identified as the bride of Christ and the bridegroom. That's the book of Ephesians. You can't get away from that. Ephesians chapter 5 is very clear on that that he is the bridegroom, and we are the church in that. And then that's further seen, evidenced in, uh, I believe, um, that picture. So you could apply this principally. But it's essentially this. There are five wise virgins, and they are the ones who are waiting, and they're ready for the coming of the bridegroom. They're waiting for that. And if you know a little bit about the culture of weddings at that time, um, often the bride would not know the very day or date that the bridegroom would come to snatch her away in marriage. And she had to be waiting and ready. And when he was ready, he would do so. Um, And that was the way it was. And so a very wise woman waiting in that engagement, betrothal period, would be 
trimming her lamps and having the oil all ready to go on that night that he would come. And you see the foolish ones, they too had that benefit of being in that expectation of him coming, but they aren't, they aren't living that way. They're not ready. And at the time of his coming, they have to still go to town and look for oil and get their wicks ready and all of that. And the picture there is, again, I think this idea of, of people who, I'm going to throw it into the church area, they benefit from the Christian community, but they themselves are not believers, or they aren't ready, and they aren't looking, and they aren't watching. Then there's those that are waiting and watching for the return of the Savior. And uh, the scripture talks about it. Anyways, grace demonstrated in that uh, also. Um, you have the feeding of the 5,000, right? And, and by the way, this is, goes with that previous one. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking, what? For the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that. That, that expectation of his return might be tonight he comes to take his bride. The, bar, the loaves, okay? And I'm going to go to Matthew 14, verse 16. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only, what? Five loaves. And two fishes. And he said, Bring them here to me. And he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and he looked up to heaven, he blessed and broke, and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. And so they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. And I think, again, this is a beautiful picture of God's grace. Did he have to feed them? No, not at all. He could have just said, all right, we're done here. I'm done my teaching and that part, and see you later. And, and they still would have been better for having a day with Jesus, right? But he feeds them. And he takes five loaves. And that, those five loaves were enough to feed them and the disciples and you know, I would say this, had there been five million people present, those five loaves would have been enough. Had there been five billion people present, those five loaves would have been enough. And I say that because his grace is all sufficient and his grace is enough to receive for anybody who will believe, anybody. Um, and that's the message of the Bible. The number five. Then we come to the number six. Number six is probably more familiar. It is the number of man. And it is associated as such throughout Scripture, the number of man. The first time we see it is on the sixth day of creation, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's important because that's how God created us. 
Then you jump to verse 31, and it says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So it's the sixth day of creation that God makes man. The next time you see six, and there's other instances, but the six cities of refuge. Numbers 35, verse 6 says, Now among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge to which a manslayer may flee, and to these you shall add 42 cities, right? And you have here um, the six primary cities of refuge that were all within a day's travel, from any point in the land, um, you could get to one of those cities within a day. And they were all in high places, visible, so they were accessible and the way was clearly marked. They had to have signage on the trails and the roads to point to the refuge. And it was particularly there given for those that killed somebody by accident. And instead of, uh, uh, well, because... Under the law, vengeance was required if you killed somebody. And it's probable that that person's relatives are going to come get you. And you could flee legally to the city of refuge. And so long as you stayed there, you were safe. And they picture for us Christ, but really they also picture for us a a salvation that is limited. Because uh, it was limited in that you were there until the death of the high priest of that city. And high priests would eventually die, okay? Um, and you, it was a place that you could go to, but in the process of getting there, the avenger might still get you, you know, in that. But they picture a place of salvation and refuge in those things. But I think it is this way. God provided it, but it's the best that man could provide at that time. And the number of six is important. It were, they were cities set apart for man to find refuge. We find the next one, uh, like, for instance, um, Israel marching around Jericho, right? You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. You say, what's the significance of that? I think it was the place, it, it happened the same thing when they were on the other side of Jordan and they had to wait three days, remember that? They waited three days because, again, three days is a picture of completion, but it's also a picture of, uh, I think, a place of understanding that that things had to be fulfilled. They were waiting. The Jordan represented death for them, and the the, the thing that blocked them from going into the promises of God, and God was going to make that whole nation stop long enough to realize they were dependent upon the Lord. In this case, the best of warriors had to march around a city six times. And the best they could do was just march around a city. There's nothing they could do at all to bring those walls down. And I wondered if they thought, just marching around, God told me to do this, I'm going to keep going around, every day get up, let's do it again, that somehow it was just going to come down because they were marching around, or people would give up and wave the white flag or whatever. That doesn't happen. Then God goes on to say, but on the seventh day, you're to take seven priests and you're to march around seven times. Or on that seventh time, they're to blow a trumpet and then the walls come down. See, the best man could do didn't bring the walls down. But the best that God could do, and the number seven represents that divine completion, God could take the walls down. 
And again, you see that pictured, I think, in the six days of marching around. How about the best of the best warriors out there, you know, that man could produce? I think Goliath stands out in my mind for that. Um, 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He was six cubits and a span. A span is half a cubit. And a a cubit is about 18 inches, if you want to kind of understand the height there. He was over nine feet tall. (laughs) And his sword is something that most of us wouldn't be able to pick up and wield. His armor you would not be able to walk around in. This is a giant of a man, and he's strong. And, of course, he's the best that man can produce. But yet, when a boy goes out dependent upon God, the best man produces falls down and is taken out. The number of a man. In Daniel chapter 3, we have Nebuchadnezzar, king of the world. Because that's what he was in that day. He thought a lot of himself. The king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. Again, images of or something pictured in six or sixes. And it's width with six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The best of man in his image. But it wasn't going to reach to heaven, was it? How about uh, the number of the Antichrist? And ultimately, the greatest of men that will ever walk this earth apart from Jesus Christ. And I say that because if you read of the Antichrist... He's a man of great eloquence and deceit and signs and wonders and all kinds of things. And yet, at the heart of him is a number that's associated with man. 666. The best that man can throw is not enough for what God can do. And then we come to the last number that I'm going to talk about tonight, and that's the number seven. Seven is the number of perfection or the number often associated with God. And, for instance, God rested on the seventh day. It says, And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. God didn't need to rest, but it was a picture of completion, a ceasing from activity, because it doesn't get any better. I'm glad. God's like that. You have... His word is as a silver purified in fire, seven times. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. And I assume that those who purified silver, they knew they had to continue to melt that down and skim the dross off, and they did that seven times. And when that was done, it was purified. Picture of completion. A picture of purity. A picture that only God can do. God's prophetic plan. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And you have, again, number of sevens. Ten times seven, seventy, right? And you have these eras of, of weeks. They're literally, that's what the word sevens means it means groupings of sevens 
And we know that they are groupings of years. And the prophetic time plan of God was very specific, and Daniel got it. And he knew when Messiah would come. And he knew the very timing of that, when he would be cut off from his people. And someday there's another seven years that is yet to happen, and and I believe that's found in the tribulation period. God's time and his prophetic clock has stopped for a moment and is pausing. We're in that parenthesis, so to speak, but that's going to start up again in the tribulation. And um, anyways, we have 70 weeks of Daniel, and that's God's complete plan. Matthew 18, fulfillment of divine forgiveness, right? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, right? How much does God forgive us? He forgives us over and over and over again. And I think the picture here isn't, don't take it just as the Pharisees probably did and say, okay, I know exactly how many times I can forgive and be forgiven. 490. And check that one off. Check that one off. Check that. Eventually, I'd get there in about a day and a half. Just so you know. Forgiveness. His forgiveness is complete. And I'm glad because when he said it is finished, it was finished. By the way, that was one of seven statements he made from the cross. Wow. You have seven miracles in the Gospel of John. Seven miracles. Uh, I won't go down through all those, but the first one, the water into wine. John 2, verses 1 to 11. And really we see here um, the, this, what seems insignificant to many, and it seems insignificant compared to all the other miracles that Jesus did. Uh, but again, it, uh, it reveals his glory, and the disciples put their faith in him at that miracle when you, when you start off in that one. And I think about that because there are six stone jars which held the water, and those six stone jars were touched by the Lord, weren't they? And um, he is superior than what man can do in that. And I'm thankful for that. And it really symbolized the mission of Messiah. Changing the empty way of man's religion into a living relationship with him. Joyful. And demonstrated in that wedding celebration. Number two, or the second miracle of John, is the healing of the official son. Remember? And again, that's in John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. And you see that where... The man took Jesus at his word, right, and departed for home. And the next day, while he was still in the way, his servants met him and told him his son has died, right? Or his son has recovered, excuse me. And, and it was, again, that discussion that he had and he learned from Christ that, um, that his word was enough, wasn't it? And that's the power to heal his son. And as I look at that one, that's a great one, the miracle. Number three miracle was the healing of the pool of Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Um, and again, that was a, a, the crippled man. And for 38 years, he had repeatedly tried to do it himself, and he failed. But Jesus was enough and healed him. 
And again, it, it really the picture in that miracle was the poverty with the law, but the richness that's found in Christ and the fullness of, of him. He brings healing to the man. The miracle number four, the feeding of the 5,000. Again, you see that one. A demonstration that God can provide and he is enough to fill us if we hunger for him. And he showed him that he was the bread of life. Miracle number five, the walking on the water. That's John 6, verse 16 to, 17, to 25. And that showed that he... Um, Again, that Jesus was able to lead them in, you know, on in midst of the storm and the waves and all of that. Miracle number six was the healing of the man born blind, and Jesus is the one who brings light to us, isn't he? And our sin has blinded us, but he's able to remove our sin, and that's pictured in that miracle with that. And then number seven in the book of John was the raising of Lazarus. And that's John 11, 1 to 44. And again, a picture that he has power over death and can raise the dead to life. We need that kind of Savior, that kind of miracle. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he asks the question, do you believe this? And there are seven I am statements in the book of John associated with those miracles. So again, the completion. And what does John show Christ as the divine, doesn't he? He's the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory even as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, those groupings of sevens, it's how God revealed Christ to us in that. And uh, I could go further into that. And then there's, for instance, um, the seven, like I said, the seven sayings from the cross. We have John who wrote to seven churches in the book of Revelation. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And, and this was the revelation of Christ to those seven churches. And I think, again, that not only were they distinct churches of that time but they represent the entire church age we have the seven spirits of god and oh and that shows up there it actually three or four four probably four or five times it shows up in the book of revelation the seven spirits of god and we wonder oh are there seven different gods no um you have in Revelation 1-4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And that's in reference to the fullness of God the Holy Spirit, right? Or the fullness of God. And we get that, I think, from Isaiah 11, verse 12, is a good example of that. Um, it should be 11, verse 2. Let me go Isaiah 11, 2, not 12. Make sure I read it correct here. So disregard that reference I have up there. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And this is the branch which shall grow out of the... He's the, he's the stem of Jesse, right? And that's Messiah. 
And here, Isaiah reveals that he has the seven spirit, sevenfold spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And you have that, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, all mentioned in that. And I believe that that, again, just shows us the fullness of divine completion and perfection in Christ. So you have those. And, of course, um, there are many other sevens that are mentioned. The seven golden um, candle or lampstands and... The Father holds a seven-sealed book, and there are seven angels pronouncing judgment in the tribulation. And uh, you can go on through that. Well, next time we'll get to the number eight. And eight is the number of new beginning. So I'm glad for new beginnings. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you tonight. We're thankful for all the details of the Bible. And thank you for these even numbers, Lord, that show us and reveal to us your plan. Thank you for grace that is greater than our sin. Oh Lord, thank you that man, even all his might, cannot attain perfection. But you can. And thank you there was a perfect man who put on flesh, became one of us. We thank you for that and we thank you, Lord, during this Christmas season we celebrate the Incarnation. And we thank you for your divine work, your perfect work, your complete work found in Jesus Christ. And we recognize that tonight and we commit our study to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.